Hey guys, it's Mishi. I want to remind you one more time about our upcoming Israel story trip. If you've never been to Israel, this will be the best possible introduction you can imagine. And if you have been here, even if you've been here many, many times, I'm sure this will be an eye-opener, an entirely new way of experiencing the country. You can easily find out more details at israelstory-trip.com or by emailing us at trip at israelstory.org. Okay, now to today's episode. I met up with Liron Lavit Turkenich in Haifa. We're in Haifa, my hometown, and we're sitting in a nice room, <laughs> a nice quiet room, and uh, discussing uh, type and letters. Liron, you see, is a typeface designer. I always loved uh, languages and words and letters and books. Actually, I, I didn't know why I want to be a graphic designer. And then I realized that there is a sub-profession in this profession that is called typeface design. And when I knew that you can design letters and someone actually designs letters and how they look, this is the moment I fell in love and I knew I wanted to do that for my career. And Haifa, where Liron grew up, turned out to be the perfect setting for launching that dream career of hers. So, two quick things you need to know. One, any official signage in Israel, road signs, signs on governmental buildings, things like that, should, at least according to the law, be written in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. And two, Haifa has a pretty sizable Arab minority, something like 10% of the population. But Liron never studied Arabic and couldn't read the Arabic on any of the countless multilingual signs around town. And at some point, I realized that I'm looking at the Arabic as if it's decorations and not like it's letters with content. And it really started to bother me. How is it possible that for 30 years I've been staring at these signs and not really noticing that Arabic has something to say? And I wanted to, to start a project that will give the Hebrew and the Arabic the same kind of respect. At the time, she was an undergrad at the Shinkar College of Engineering, Design and Art. She was about to graduate and was searching for an idea for her final project. That's when she stumbled upon the work of a 19th century French ophthalmologist, a guy by the name of Louis-Emile Javal. Javal had a lab at the Sorbonne, made some important contributions in the fields of astigmatism and eye-tracking, and even developed an innovative device, the Javal Schutz ophthalmometer, which measured the curvature of the corneal surface of the eye. But Liron was interested in something else he had done. A somewhat surprising finding about the way we read. He discovered something that applies to Latin. Latin letters, English, French, Italian, uh, Portuguese. Uh, so if you only look at the top part of the letters, you can actually read them. And that was astonishing. And if you try at home to cover the bottom of the letters of the Latin alphabet, so the A and the B, you basically need only the top half. And I, I love this idea. And I just started doing this wild experiment and I tried to see if it works for Hebrew. It didn't take long before Liron figured out that... Emil Javal was wrong about Hebrew. 
uh, it doesn't work like the Latin, but it works the other way around. So for Hebrew, you basically need the bottom half in order to read. So most identifying characteristics are at the bottom. And uh, this was extremely cool to discover. I loved it. I could basically read just by using the bottom part of the Hebrew. And then I checked if it's working for the Arabic. Most of the information in Arabic, just like in the Latin scripts, is contained in the upper half of the letters. Well, if you think um, visually, you can imagine that if you only use the bottom part of the Arabic, the shape that comes out is a bit like waves. Basically, many, many, many letters have this ball shape at the bottom and they look very similar. So you would need the top half. This realization that for the sake of legibility, Hebrew only required the bottom and Arabic only the top, immediately got Liron going. The idea was to, to mix them into one experimental script. The top half would always be Arabic and the bottom half would always be Hebrew. And that way, if you are used to reading Arabic, you would look at the top half of the letters. And if I would read Hebrew, I would look at the bottom half of the words. Liron began combining each one of Hebrew's 22 letters with each one of Arabic's 28, and forming 638 entirely new hybrid letters. But it's a whole new letter. It's one coherent letter that looks like one letter that you've never seen before. I guess this is sort of like the typeface version of those mythological half-man, half-fish creatures. So I didn't invent these letters, you know, from scratch. I, I kept the most uh, essential parts of them, and then I merged them or stitched them together. And what did you call your mixed language? So I called it Aravrit, uh, which is uh, Aravit in Hebrew means Arabic, and Ivrit means Hebrew. So it's, it's a hybrid of these two words, just like this project is, actually. What was the first word you wrote in Aravrit? I wrote the word Safa, language. Uh, I'll show you. <laughs> So this is Safa. Liron pulled out her laptop and started showing us examples of Varavrit. Lura in Arabic. Okay, so what are we looking at? This is my uh, font editor. This is how I design um, the typefaces in Varavrit. And in this software, I can actually just move around the dots and change how the, how the letters look. So this is how I work on it. Um, oh, I know, I know, I know what to show you. If you're having a hard time visualizing Garavrit, just go to our website. We've posted some images and short videos. Are there letters that were particularly problematic? Yes. <laughs> so the Ra, for instance, in Arabic, actually goes below the lines. So this is still giving me a very hard time because the Arabic is supposed to be on the top. So each time there is Hebrew and then there is this one Arabic letter kind of sneaking into the Hebrew part, which is nice, I think, conceptually as well. In any event, you might think that Aravrit was labeled as a quaint, left-wing naivete and just ignored. But... Well, friends, Aravrit became a cultural meme. A video clip about the project had millions of views, and tens of thousands of Israelis shared and liked it. Then, one day, Liron was... Invited to visit uh, the president of Israel. Uh, and uh, I made in Aravrit a greeting for the Ramadan. And we brought two kids, one who is speaking Arabic and one who is speaking Hebrew. And they were supposed to paint the word and color it and kind of offer this nice greeting from the president to the, the Arabic uh, citizens. The two kids, seven-and-a-half-year-old Uriel Reifen from San Simon and seven-year-old Marianne Farouja from Enkarem, 
sat down. They looked at the piece of paper and they just asked them, oh, can you read this? They've never seen these letters before. They've never seen the project before. And I was stunned because they could just read it so easily. They did not make any effort. And this was the most emotional part of this project for me. I obviously started crying and it was so sweet, the effortless way of them reading it. It was just so native to them. It was amazing. Yeah. Uriel and Marianne actually became friends after that joint audience with the president, and have already had a playdate. It was, both mothers told me on the phone, a big hit. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So, despite all the seemingly endless tension we always hear about, the kind of Jewish-Arab interlacing of Liron Zaravrit takes place on all kinds of levels. Personal, professional, national. And in our episode today, which in the spirit of Zaravrit we're calling Jarab, that's Jarab with a B, as in Jew and Arab, not to be confused hopefully with Jared with a D, we bring you one such story of mixing and sharing. Here's Yochai Meital with No Man's Land. Where would you like to live? In Israel, by the sea. <laughs> I, I grew up dreaming of the sea every night. I see it on TV, I see it on pictures, I see it on internet, but I don't see it in real life. Have you ever been to the to the beach in Israel? No. I did not because I never got the permit. Are you scared? Mm, scared for him, yes. For him mostly. And for me because I I, I can't imagine him being harmed. <laughs> it's funny because I'm actually afraid for her. I'm scared of her giving up some chances because of this relationship. Living in this relationship, you have to choose between future or love. If it shows love, you're kind of blind for the future because you never know what's happening tomorrow. I can't tell you exactly where I recorded this story. I can only say that it was in a sort of no-man's land, in the middle of the wilderness. Would you like coffee or tea? Maybe coffee? Sure, just let me make the fire. It's not completely Israeli territory, nor is it exactly Palestine either, and it's one of the most breathtaking places in the region, which is completely suitable. Because the heroes of this story, well, they're just as beautiful as the scenery around them. We kind of don't have a other place to go for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if we want to keep our relationship going on, we have to live here. There is no other options. She is this tall, blue-eyed fairy tale princess, and he a dashing Arabian prince. Both are barefoot and tan. My name is uh, Sarah. Uh, I'm 24 years old. I'm from Ukraine. Now I'm Israeli, Jewish, and I love this guy, Tamer. I don't know where would, uh, it will take me. We'll see. Uh, I'm Tamer. I'm 19 years old. I'm a Palestinian citizenship, and the love of my life is an Israeli Jew girl. Thank you.
Tamer was born in Be'er Sheva, the eldest son of a prominent Bedouin father. As a kid, his family moved around a lot. Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Palestine. Eventually, they settled down in Ramallah, where the men in the family became high-ranking officers in the Palestinian security services. But Tamer didn't exactly live up to his father's macho expectations. I never felt right doing the same things that other kids are doing. I wanted to be the different kind. One day, when Tamer was 13, he went over to his neighborhood's community center to meet up with friends and play some ping pong. But it was closed. And there was the first dance class in the studio right next to us. And I just entered my head to check what's happening. Tamer saw a group of people twirling, swaggering, making sudden bolts and free-flowing struts. His gaze was transfixed. The teacher, noticing his curiosity, well, she walked over and asked him if he cared to join. I told her it's not nice. Coming from a traditional Muslim background, all those flailing arms and legs, gyrating torsi and the tight-fitting dancing attire, it all seemed incredibly unwholesome. She told me, okay, stay with us for a few days, do the movement, and then leave. Those few days, well, they became months, then years. I guess you could say that Tamer, He's sort of the Palestinian Billy Elliot. He likes to boogie. He likes to boogie. I wake up and I'm, I'm going to regular school and I can't wait to finish, so I go dance. I go home, I'm watching dance videos, and I'm postponing studying because I want to dance and read dance books. It became my happiness, my sadness, my anger, everything. Eventually, dancing became my life. But he knew that this was not something that his dad would condone. So I told them I'm in the football team. He kept up that lie for a long time. And after two years, I was home. But I didn't know that the football team that I was supposed to be in is having a big match. And I was home just relaxing at the TV. <laughs> and then they discovered that I'm not in the team because they were actually planning to go to the football match, but I was home. <laughs> they tried to force him to quit. Tamer was set on dancing. Begrudgingly, they learned to live with a son who was more at home in a dance studio than at the mosque, who preferred a cold beer to sweet tea, a son that was mingling with the bohemian artsy scene of Ramallah. But there were red lines he hadn't yet crossed. I was in a bar in Ramallah having a beer, and I see a beautiful girl in the table next to me also having a beer. We'll get back to that scene at the bar a little later. But for now, let's travel due north, some 2,000 kilometers, to Kiev, Ukraine, where 10-year-old Sarah, she had a totally non-Jewish, Russian-sounding name back then, was trying to figure something out. Our family looks different. Uh, our mentality is a bit different from, from the Ukrainian ones. Although we don't have other religion, like we're not religious family, don't have another language, so why we're different? I never understood really. But she was about to. You see, her father took her on a family trip to Poland, to this place called... Auschwitz, to the concentration camp. And he told me everything. There, among the ashes, the discarded baby shoes, and the teenagers wrapped in Israeli flags, he started recounting old and seldom told family stories. About uh, his family that... Um, they were persecuted uh, in, the, in the wartime, and uh, they also were in camps. I felt myself 
like I felt that it's part of me. Growing up, Sarah often heard anti-Semitic remarks being tossed around school, but she never really paid them too much attention. After she got back from Poland, things started to change. Suddenly, those remarks were pointed directly at her. Are you Jewish? I say, yeah, like, part of my family are Jewish. Wow, like, what a shit, like, what a shit you have in your life. Or, yeah, like, we're, we really are disappointed that Hitler didn't kill all of us. Like, he would clean up this place from all the shit like you. Sarah decided that if she was going to be on the receiving end of such remarks, she might as well know something about the group she was now being identified with. Girls are usually, pro- like, not prohibited, but they don't uh, learn to mood. But I did this. I just was going to Beit Midrash in Ukraine and sitting with boys and telling them, I stay here and I learn. And eventually they said, okay. And I discovered something very beautiful that I belong to. As Sarah was slowly becoming more and more religious, she began feeling something that so many Jews over the generations had experienced before her. I felt kind of not welcome at the place I was born and raised in. And on top of that... When I became religious, my family kind of cut from me. Sarah's family were fervent atheists. And this new version of her as a pious woman in long skirts, it felt foreign and threatening. They wanted nothing to do with her. Feeling basically alone in the world, Sarah decided it was time for a change of scenery. When she turned 18, she moved to Israel and landed in a Haredi Ulpena, or an all-girls boarding school in Jerusalem. I was really, really observing and I was doing it from my heart. But then all kinds of small things started bothering her. When I came there, I, I discovered that they don't learn anything. They just say, TV is bad. You have to wear the big, uh, thick socks uh, in the summer because it's good. And uh, I couldn't stand this style. So I wanted to break it. I didn't want my life to continue like this. And that's, uh, that's what I did. I started uh, giving up, observing things little by little. I felt very strange with it after six years uh, of uh, strict observing. Despite making many good friends, Sarah left the Ulpena. And then once more I see myself totally alone and I have to build everything from the beginning. I don't know what to do, like I don't have anybody here, I have to pay the rent. I just understood I'm fucked here. Around this time, Sarah started hanging out at this hummus bar in Jerusalem. I was sitting there a lot and uh, guys uh, there, they just offered me to work there. And I told them, okay. The place was owned by Arabs from East Jerusalem. And that's also where most of the people working there were from. For Sarah, this was the first time she had any meaningful interaction with Arabs. And they proved to be very, very nice. And uh, two of them were also actors and uh, dancers of Dabke. And they invited me to, to come for their show in Ramallah. And I thought, I come to Ramallah. Mm, okay, I come to Ramallah, no problem. <laughs> Sarah went to that Dabke performance, and she had a great time. After that, she'd return every now and then and sit in local cafes and bars. I just saw a lot of young people dressed like me, talking like me. I discovered that there is another world like so close to us, 
and they know nothing about us, we know nothing about them. I think it bears mentioning here that Sarah wasn't, and still isn't, some kind of political activist or a peacenik. I wouldn't even tell about myself that I'm leftist, not at all. I support the Israeli state, I think there should be a right for Jews to live in the place that are historically connected to and to build their destiny as a nation. So it wasn't politics that drew Sarah to Ramallah. It was something else, something more personal. I felt myself kind of rejected in Israeli society because I was religious in the past, not really knowing the codes of the of the secular Israeli society, and I just felt more welcome in Ramallah, hmm. for real. Back in Ukraine, Jewish helped Jewish. Here, not. I discovered that it doesn't really play a big role that you're Jewish. This trick doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't work here. But somehow, in Ramallah, she discovered a place where people were friendly and, as she felt back then, non-judgmental. Sarah fell in love with the scene. She kept going back, making new friends. And that brings us back to that night at the bar. I was in a bar in Ramallah having a beer, and I see a beautiful girl in the table next to me also having a beer. Yeah, he was sitting in another, in another corner with, uh, with his friends and looking at me from time to time. Tamer waited for an opening, an accidental glance, a half-smile, anything. But she wasn't paying him any attention. So I stole her lighter. Tamer asked her for a light and then forgot to give it back. A few minutes later, Sarah came asking for it and they started talking. Yeah, and I liked him. I don't know how to describe it. I just, uh, he's optimistic, he's funny, he's uh, very courageous. In any case, the bottom line? She gave me her number, but she stopped using the same number she gave me. Tamara tried calling and never got an answer. For a while, he'd search for her in bars and on the street. And then, almost two months later... I receive a message at 3.21 a.m. Asleep? Dazed, Tamil replied. First, yes. Second, what? Third, who? Sarah quickly wrote him back. I'm sorry for waking you up. And I thought, what a nice person. I, I texted her back, it's okay. I, I wanted to wake up at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, I receive a message. How are you? And I reply, thanks, and you, etc. And it kept texting and texting and texting. He told the... Uh, are you Jewish? I told him, yes. Are you Israeli? Yes. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> we kept texting, texting, and I can feel a little bit of love in the text. Sarah and Tamer started going out, and eventually she moved to Ramallah to be closer to him. In the beginning I was very happy because everything's so different, and food is good and cheap. And then suddenly I became discovering that he was telling me, okay, you can't kiss me even on the cheek. Like, we are in the bar, you can't hug me too much. We can't sit in a public place like a park. You don't feel yourself free. I remember telling her and every time seeing her face being shocked, like, why? And every time I, me not able to explain her because I don't believe in whatever I'm telling her, but I know that we're forced to do it. But not being able to sit together on the park bench, that turned out to be the least of their worries. 
For my family, of course, it's a problem. So in the beginning, she was just a European, a Christian European. I have to say, yeah, yeah, I'm from Ukraine to invent all these fake stories to remember what was back in Ukraine. And I felt myself shit. I found out I'm living a fa fake life. But his friends were asking questions. Okay, what was she doing in Israel for six years? How come she speaks Hebrew? Does she have the passport? Oh, so she's an Israeli citizenship. Is she a Jew? Okay, she can't come to Israel if she's not a Jew. So she's a Jew. You must leave her. You must stop. Inevitably, his family caught wind of the rumors. They were threatening him and they were like talking about me, like stopping with this Israeli Jewish bitch, Sharmuta. I was literally very scared for him. I was scared as well because I, I knew that we're in the place that does not support this relationship. And I knew that in a place that you're not really protected, all kinds of things can happen to you. I told him, no way me living here anymore. I can't live like this. You should either cut with them, either cut with me. And he told me, okay, so where are we going? As an Israeli citizen, it's actually illegal for Sarah to be in Ramallah, which is categorized as Area A, a zone under complete Palestinian control. Tamir can't legally cross the green line. There's literally nowhere they can be together. So we went to, to live in the desert, <laughs> in the nature. Like, we, we, we can't live in the city, on the West Bank. Uh, we're not accepted there, and also in Israel we're not accepted. So the only place is a tent. And this brings us finally to today. Tamir and Sarah have fled. His family is looking for him, sending ominous messages, threatening to hurt him if he doesn't leave his Jewish partner. So we live in Awarzula, which contains two tents. One tent is for me, for Sarah, and the cat to sleep in. And the other tent is our uh, storing room. We have the clothes, we have the blankets. A living room, which which have the food, Nescafe, cafe, tea, and milk, and all kind of drinks you want. And what do you guys live off of? Ah, uh, he sold his PlayStation, and I had some money from before. Uh, but I would say we don't spend a lot here because we are buying uh, just rice and vegetables, and we are cooking, so it's not a lot of money. We decided together that let's run out of money. And the money we have is enough until three, four weeks. And every day we're thinking where we're going next. Because you can't live in nature anymore because it's so hot. The temperature in the area where Tamir and Sarah have pitched their tents can reach above 50 degrees Celsius in the summer. That's like 122 Fahrenheit. Tamir told me that despite the heat, the dust, the intimidating messages from his family, He'd follow Sarah anywhere. It's both terribly romantic, what you're saying, and uh, terrifying. I would totally agree with you, yes. Right now, I, I'm kind of familyless, friendsless, and placeless because of this relationship. Because no one wants uh, a Palestinian in a relationship with an Israeli Jew. But. Uh, I don't know, my love to her is way stronger than all these things, so I took the decision of allowing myself to fall in love with her. 
At the end of our interview, after I closed the recorder and packed up my gear, Sarah turned to me and asked a very direct question. So, now that you've heard our story, what do you think? Is there any hope? I looked at her and then at Tamer, at their beauty, at their youth. I took a last sip of the black coffee they had made for me on the fire that was still fizzling out in the corner. And I thought to myself that if anyone has a chance, it's these two. I mean, they're so in love, they're so brave, and have already been through so much together. I wish I would have just said yes, but I didn't. I didn't because it seemed hypocritical, and as beautiful as they, their story and the mesmerizing desert sunset around us all were, deep down I feared that reality would prove too difficult for them, that sooner or later they'd crash. You know, in our line of work, we tell stories. We meet people, listen to them, and then we go home and we think about how best to present their tales. We have a lot of control, really. I mean, we can edit out certain aspects, we can choose how and when to reveal others, but we can't control the facts, the outcomes, or the endings of our stories. And sometimes, I wish we could. There are occasional IDF patrols in the area where Tamir and Sarah pitch their tents. They've caught Tamir a few times in the past and let him off with a warning. See, he's what's called a shoheh bilti chuki, an illegal alien. And as such, he isn't allowed to set foot in Israel. One day, recently, as Sarah was out collecting firewood, the soldiers came by again. When she returned to their tent, Tamir was nowhere to be found. A couple of days later, she received a text message. I was caught by the police, it read. I will be investigated in Ramallah tomorrow. All my papers, my ID, my passport, everything was taken. I don't know what else to say. Depressed, tired, and heartbroken, Sarah didn't want to stay in the tent alone, waiting around for an uncertain future. So she booked an open-ended ticket to Norway. Yochai Meital. Now, in case you've spent the last 20-something minutes frantically searching Microsoft Word for an Aravrit font, I'll just say that it isn't available just yet. For now, Liron still designs each word individually, usually by request. There are certain words that I don't really want to design in Aravrit. For instance, the word peace or the word coexistence. A lot of people ask for these words, and I say that I'm not designing them for now, because I think that it doubles the message, actually. I think you shouldn't say peace, and then in the letters they mean peace as well. I rather say and write different words that are basic and from our daily lives, and you will get the message of peace and coexistence and whatnot. Where do you see a Ravrit in 10 years from now? Wow. <laughs> I hope in many places, and I hope it brings a lot more discussion. And just very simply that people wouldn't ignore 
the other script which is always there. You know, you see Arabic every day next to Hebrew. This is basically it. You still see Hebrew next to the Arabic in Aravrit, but they're closer together this time. Before we sign off, I wanted to announce that we're now hiring our newest cohort of fall production interns. If you think this should be you, go to our website, israelstory.org, where you'll find all the info you need. As always, you can hear all our previous episodes on our site, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes and any of the other main podcast platforms. Don't forget, if you can, to rate us and write a review on iTunes, since that helps us grow. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you'd like to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, which you really, really should, it's easy. Just email us at sponsor at prx.org. The original music in today's episode was composed and performed by Ran Zamir and the amazing trio of Ruth Danon, Nili Fink, and Noam Sadan. You can find links to their music on our site. The episode was mixed by the one and only Sela Weisblum. Thanks to Roichi Kiarad, Tamar Eisenberg, Ruth Danon, Daniela Satran, and Marach Faruja. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Yochai Meital, Maya Kosover, Zev Levi, Aviva de Kornfeld, and Eve Snyder. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. So till then, yalla bye. <laughs> تملي معاك تملي في بالي وفي قلبي ولا بنساك تملي وحشني لو حتى بكون وياك تملي معاك معاك قلبي معاك روحي يا لحبيب يا أغلى حبيب ومهما تكون بعيد عني لقلبي قريب يا عمر الجاي والحاضر يا أحلى نصيب تملي حبيبي بشتاك لك تملي علي من بدلك ولو حوالي كل الكون فكون يا حبيبي محتاج لك تملي حبيبي بشتاك لك تملي علي من بدلك ولو حوالي كل الكون فكون يا حبيبي محتاج تملي معاك معاك قلبي معاك روحي يا أغلى حبيب يا أغلى حبيب ومهما تكون بعيد عني لقلبي قريب يا عمر الجاي والحاضر يا أحلى نصيب
تملي حبيبي بشتاك لك تملي علي من بدلك ولو حوالي كل الكون بكون يا حبيبي محتاج لك تملي حبيبي بشتاك لك تملي عيون تندهلك ولو حوالي كل الكون بكون يا حبيبي محتاج لك